we're in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read beginning in verse 1, but I'd like for us to read responsively. And so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. And kids, if you can read, go ahead and follow along. Uh, it is on the slide or it's not on the slide? Okay, so what you're going to do is I'll, I'll read the odd verses, okay? Fitting, I know. Um, and then you will join me in reading the even verses, and those verses will be underlined so that you're not confused, okay? And it's on the screen. So let's read this together responsively, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness." This is God's Word. Uh, you can be seated, and let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering this family together and for allowing us even to welcome guests and uh, relatives, visitors from out of town or neighbors who live nearby. I pray that everything that is said in the next few moments would be honoring to you and would not only be true factually, but be a, a good representation of who you are and what you're like and your character. And Father, I pray that you would show each one of us what, what you want us to know about you and what you want us to do in response. And Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you are a young person and you're not used to listening to a long sermon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find the, the bulletin that you got, or your mom and dad maybe have one, and I want you to write down as many jobs in the church as you can think of. So think of jobs in the church, things that people do. Be creative. And I want you to write down as many as you can think of. If you're an older kid and you can listen to the sermon and take notes, then you do that. But if you feel like you need something to do, that's a good idea, okay? And the kid who shows me their bulletin that has the most jobs, I'm going to think of something, uh, some prize or something like that for you, okay? So there's a little incentive for you guys to, to listen to what we're talking about today. Finally home. That's the feeling Simon and his wife Ruth 
felt flooding their hearts on the day they saw the walls of the largest city in the world looming in the distance. The sun reflecting off the magnificent buildings on the hill overlooking their home, a drab tenement apartment on the opposite bank of the Tiber River from those magnificent buildings, an unimpressive but familiar structure they had left seven years before. Emperor Claudius had kicked them out of Rome, them and thousands of their countrymen, all Jews, had been forced to leave. That was painful on so many levels. The only home either of them had ever known, their business interests, their close-knit neighborhood, and their fledgling community of faith in Jesus Christ had all dissolved overnight. The worst part had been saying goodbye to their church. Simon had been one of the founding members of the tiny congregation. Started just after he and a handful of other men had returned from the celebration of Pentecost in Jerusalem just after the death and resurrection of Jesus. They reported the good news about Jesus Christ to their synagogue. And even though the majority of the group had rejected the message and they were forced to start from scratch together as a a new community of the followers of Jesus in the city of Rome, it had all been worth it. They had even seen some Gentile God-fearers join the church in the two decades following its initial founding. And then, one day... An edict was posted, all Jews are commanded to leave the city. But that had been the edict of Claudius, and now Claudius was dead. His stepson Nero had taken his place, and Simon and Ruth and the rest of the Jews were allowed to return to their homes in the city. Now let's go with Simon and Ruth to their first day back to church. Imagine their anticipation. Their excitement at the prospect of returning to the church where Simon had been a charter member and one of its first elders. Imagine the sense of of homecoming after being gone for seven years. It's the Lord's Day. They set out from their apartment with a handful of other Jewish Christians lately returned from exile. They walk a few blocks to the large home in which the church would gather to meet. Ascend the steps. Enter the open air atrium and into the gathering of their church the church that they had helped to start. The worship service begins, and immediately they can tell everything is totally different. Those few Gentiles whom they had left so young in the faith were now leading the worship. The readers were Gentiles. The song leaders were Gentiles. The preacher was a Gentile. The home in which they were gathered was obviously owned by a Gentile. Everything was different. Simon and Ruth exchanged glances. This was not the church they left seven years before. Now, I don't know if Simon and Ruth really existed. But what I do know and what I just described actually happened in the Roman church. It was founded by Jewish Christians very early after the resurrection of Jesus. Those believers were abruptly banished from the city of Rome along with all other Jews, leaving the remaining Gentile Christians to assume leadership in the church. Then, just before Paul wrote this letter, the letter to the Romans, the Jews had been allowed to return. Can you imagine the awkwardness of that return after years being gone? 
There's no doubt that they found a very different church when they returned from the one they had left a few years earlier. You see, many Christians read the book of Romans and they think this is something like a theological treatise, and there's reasons for that. I mean, it's very profound. It soars with uh, the, the gospel truth. But what you need to know is that the words we just read together were written to a real church facing real problems. In fact, some of what we find in the book of Romans is included, I think, to address these very matters. And I just want to appoint, uh, point out that, that, that the kind of like oil and water dynamic that must have existed between the Jewish members of the church and the Gentile members of the church isn't all that far off from the kind of cultural distinctions we experience in our own church today. Yes, Indian Creek Baptist Church. I mean, think about it. There are young people and old people. I mean, just that in and of itself creates a clash from time to time. There are people who live on a postage stamp in the city of Mineral Wells and people who live on a large tract of family land in the county. We have people who have lived in this area during the difficult decades after the, the closure of the base and people who just moved here just a few months ago. We have people who joined Indian Creek back in the 90s or before People who joined when Pastor Guy was the pastor, people who joined the church when Pastor Bill was here as the interim pastor, and people who have joined after Pastor Jake became the pastor. I mean, I could keep going, but you get my meaning. Sometimes God is a more creative chef than we would be. I mean, if we had our way, it would be chicken nuggets, macaroni and cheese, ketchup, and if we're feeling really risky, maybe a dash of black pepper, right? But we're just the line cooks. Jesus is the master chef. And he's creating a signature dish called the church. And sometimes we stand there, we watch him throwing ingredients into this big pot called Indian Creek Baptist Church, and we think, you know, Jesus, not to be rude or anything, but, you know, the, the garlic and the mushrooms are not going to taste very good with the craisins and the pork shoulder. And Jesus, it's like he looks back at us and sort of smiles, and then he tosses in a few nuts, like, Bill Sessom, you know? <laughs> the Roman church was being stretched to lay aside their worldly prejudices and walk together as if they were parts of the same body. And of course, the same is true for us. This is what God calls us to do today. One body, many members. And what we're going to see from this passage is that image, that illustration, this ideal for what God uh, for what Indian Creek is supposed to look like, is actually a logical outflow of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. It just makes sense in light of what Christ has done. And so uh, there are actually, I would say, three facets of this, three entailments that sort of build on each other as we move through the passage. And the first is found in the first two verses. So notice with me, first of all, gospel grace logically leads to total sacrifice. Gospel grace logically leads to total sacrifice. The key word here is posture. What type of posture does the gospel of Christ lead me to take toward God? Notice the details of verse 1. Paul says, what's the first word? He says, therefore. Therefore, which means he's about to say, what he's about to say is actually an inference that flows out of the things that he had said before. It's a very important connecting word. What he's saying is think back on everything I just said. Sometime on your own, go back and in one sitting, read the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Just It'll only take you 
it'll take you less than an hour. I mean, just think about all that Paul is talking about here when he says, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, the whole world is under sin, it's hurtling toward hell, loving every minute of it, even people who see it as a problem and teach that you shouldn't murder or steal or lie are participating in the very things they condemn, Every single person is inescapably infected with evil so that the wrath and the righteous anger of God hangs over us like this giant granite boulder waiting to fall and crush us. We're hating on each other. We're hating on God, heaping up condemnation against ourselves. And yet God in his grace and in his kindness, without us asking, without us reaching out for for help, without us seeking him, without us doing a thing, God loved us and sent his son while we were still his enemies to die for his enemies so that God actually exchanges our sentence of death for his fatherly love and grace and mercy and salvation. And then when we get to chapter 8, we learn he sends his spirit into the into the heart of the believer to directly apply these realities to individuals so we can know for sure that we are safe and secure and guaranteed a future in the glories of God's presence and that God is doing all this according to a merciful and wonderful wise plan that he started before the beginning and demonstrated throughout history so that we have absolutely zero reason to boast or be proud and zero reason to ever doubt that God's love is ever going to run out And when we really begin to grasp these truths, our minds are sort of just blown away and we're just left saying from him and through him and to him are all things. And Paul says, think about that for a second. What's the logical outflow of those realities in your life? Here here it is. Total personal living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Think about a sacrifice and how every molecule of that animal gets burned up and consumed on that altar. Every part of it is totally committed, totally devoted to I am. The logical conclusion of the good news of Jesus Christ is that your life should look exactly like that. It's your reasonable service. So apply this to your own practice of of devotion to the Lord. God wants it all. It makes sense to give him to give him our all, every facet of our life. Uh, let, let that sink in. Let it challenge you for a moment. Let it confront you for a moment. I mean, think about this. God comes to you and he says, I, I want you to quit your job and I want you to go to this nation that you'd never heard of before and I want you to share the gospel with these people that don't like to hear, that don't want to hear it. And what do we say? God, God says something like that to us. What do we say? God, be, can you, God, be reasonable. And God says, I am being reasonable. I'm the one who's being reasonable. You know why we don't think that that's reasonable? It's because gospel truth has not sunk in yet. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, this logical process of taking the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and kind of chasing down its entailments in everyday life is a discipline every believer needs to embrace. The, the actual structure of our thinking needs to change because what we, the way that we think is borrowed from the structures and systems of the world. It's borrowed from these, these long centuries of plans and strongholds that have been put in place by wicked men and scheming demons, and we have to purposely shed that worldly thinking. 
God says, I want you to give generously and sacrificially toward the work that, I've, that I'm doing in the world. I want you to test me. I want you to be so generous with your finances that you test me. You have to depend on my provision. And we say, wait a second, God, be reasonable. God says, I am being reasonable. He says, I want you to gather with my people. I want you to make it a priority to serve the body. I want it to take precedence over your work, over your family, over your leisure. You be present so that you can exhort and encourage others and be exhorted and encouraged. And we say, God, be reasonable. I have, I have the tournament and I have uh, some things for work to do and I've got to mow and I've got to do all these things. I've got a family reunion and sometimes I just need to sleep in. God, be reasonable. And God says, I am being reasonable. You be reasonable. Do you realize how fragile we've become in the American church? How averse we are to even the slightest inconvenience? Churches that don't have climate control, excellent child care, fantastic music, they close their doors. You know what that is? That's crazy. And I mean that literally. That is insane. That is irrational. It does not make sense. It's crazy to think that we should come to church for the purpose of satisfying our own comforts. You know what makes sense? Asking this, how can I give up my life in order to worship this God who has so wonderfully poured out his love for me? Let me ask you a question. Are you thinking logically about your life? Are you thinking reasonably about your life? Or are you going crazy? Have you reached the reasonable conclusion that the entire thing belongs to God through and through? Because if we're going to be the kind of church that effectively and truly pursues the mission to which God has called us, then we've got to be reasonable. The world's irrational logic isn't going to take us anywhere but self-protection and self-service and self-aggrandizement and consumerism and legalism and anger and anxiety and bitterness. But when we apply the logic of the gospel... To our entire life, we see a different way, and Paul starts to get really specific about that way, beginning in verse 3. So that leads us to our second principle. Here's principle number one. Gospel grace logically leads to total sacrifice, but notice principle number two. Gospel grace logically leads to humble self-regard. Gospel grace logically leads to humble self-regard. The key word here is perspective. If our posture toward God ought to be one of total sacrifice... Our perspective ought to be, with regard to our place in the family of God, ought to be one of sobriety, humility. Here in verse 3, Paul offers a sort of play on words. This is kind of how it sounds to the people speaking Greek. Don't upthink more than you should think, but think in order to right think. Four times. He uses a word that, that's related to this word think. And what I think he's saying is the, the problem starts in the way that we think. We've been thinking the wrong way. So before we focus on behaviors, before we start to try to act like followers of Jesus, we need to think about our thinking. Stop up thinking yourself. Start right thinking yourself. You say, Jake, I don't understand. Can you, can you explain all this in terms of hunting and shooting? Sure. I thought of this this week when Andrew and I uh, were working on a very important project together in the rifle range. <laughs> the reason the trajectory of your life is missing the target and skewing high and to the left is because your scope is misaligned. 
You're looking at life wrong. And so you need to do the work allowing the gospel to adjust the windage and the elevation and get those crosshairs in the right spot, and then you will find that the trajectory of your life begins to hit the target. What I'm saying is the lens through which you are looking at yourself and at the world is misaligned, and you've got to get it aligned with the gospel of Jesus. How do you do that? Well, look what he says. You think as God has distributed to each person the measure of faith. In other words, don't puff yourself up But don't put yourself down either. Remember the gospel. What does the gospel say about us? It says, on the one hand, we're sinners deserving the wrath and the punishment of God, redeemed even though we don't deserve to be redeemed. It's only by his grace that we're saved from judgment to begin with. But on the other hand, the gospel reminds us that we are God's treasured possession and that we are placed here for a reason. And through the work of Christ and the down payment of the Spirit of God, we can actually participate in the work of God in the church. Each of us is God's gift to the church. He's distributed to each of us a unique expression of the faith in order to build up the body. And we're supposed to recognize that and enter into it. That's right thinking ourselves. In other words, just to bring this into the practical realm, what Paul is asking each of us to do is to sort of set aside all the ways that we sort each other into different categories and sort each, sort each other into the categories that God gives us. Uh, stop making such a big deal about seniority or influence or power. In, in the church, your seniority or your wealth or your education should not be symbols of, of power and, and influence. That Let's stop ranking each other on the basis of these worldly categories. I'll give you a specific example. Ever since I started in in ministry, I hear experienced Christians sometimes say things like, hey, uh, I paid my dues, and now it's somebody else's turn to serve in the nursery. Now it's somebody else's turn to clean bathrooms. It's someone else's turn to take the kids to camp. And, And listen, if you're saying that, here's what I hope you mean. I hope you mean... I just need a rest. I need to recharge. And I'd love to give someone else the opportunity to serve the Lord. I don't want to be in their way. But here's what I'm I'm concerned that you might mean. I'm concerned that you might mean something like this. I've earned a rest. I've earned enough merit to sit back and coast. I've paid for the right to watch other people do all the things that need to be done. And if that's the case, here's what you're doing. You are thinking irrationally. You are thinking nonsensical thoughts. What you're thinking does not make sense. What, you're thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Your perspective is off. When we're thinking logically, there is not a single cell in our body that, that thinks, this is my church, I paid for it. No, you didn't. None of us paid for it. You didn't pay your dues. Jesus paid your dues. I mean, this is the gospel. This is what we do. We have to take the gospel's truth and apply it to the way that we think. And and let me be clear. I I think better of you. By the way, this church would not even be here if it weren't for the ladies, probably the people who have been the Christians the longest, who are across the street right now getting ready for us to eat. They're not even in the room. So I'm not saying that this is part of being a Christian for a long time. I'm saying if you're there, you're just off. And I'm thankful that in this church, 
for so many, the greater your humility, the, the longer you've been a Christian, the greater your humility and your gratitude is shown through. I'm grateful for your example of humble self-regard because what it shows me is that the gospel has taken root in your heart and it leads me to, to, to follow your example. This is what uh, the, the writer to the Hebrews says, consider those who've gone before you, imitate their faith. That's the kind of faith I would want to imitate. Gospel grace logically leads to total sacrifice, to humble self-regard, but in the third place, notice with me, gospel grace logically leads to generous service. Gospel grace logically leads to generous service. The key word in verses 4 through 8 is practice. Our posture toward God is one of total sacrifice that makes sense. Our perspective on ourselves within the family of God ought to lead us to think, hey, I'm a forgiven sinner, but I'm here for a reason. I'm going to use the gifts that God's given me to build up the body. And our practice, uh, our, our use of those spiritual gifts within the body of Christ is going to also logically flow out of the gospel as well. Here in verses 4 through 8, Paul states a general principle and then he makes specific applications. Here's the general principle. The church, just like I told the kids, the church is like a body. Look at your body. I mean, think about it. Not every part of your body is a foot. I mean, you couldn't hug your mother. You could kick her, but you wouldn't be able to hug her. You, you can't do the things that you need to do if your whole body is a foot. No, we have different parts of our body that fulfill different functions. This is the way the church is designed to be. It's a living organism. Lots of individual people, the, the, the body parts, but one unified body. And it's amazing to me. By the way, just as an aside, it's amazing to me how many people tell me that they can have a vibrant rich relationship with God apart from the church when God's saying things like this. I mean, what amputated limb is living its best life? I'm sorry. It doesn't make sense. Following Christ means being a part of the body. That's the general principle. And so here's the specific application. Just like the body parts all have different functions, so it is in the church. God's given different gifts to different members of the body in order that we might use those gifts to serve others and show the world that we've been changed corporately and individually by the gospel of Christ. So I think the logic of the passage is, is relatively transparent. It's pretty easy to follow what Paul is saying. The gospel leads us to think of ourselves as undeserving but treasured members of the body of Christ. It leads us to use our gifts to serve others in the church and advance the mission in the world. That's the flow. So with that being said, let, before I close, let me just make four really practical observations about these spiritual gifts that God's given us. By the way, Andrew taught a class on spiritual gifts a few months ago, and I think he's going to do that again where he'll get more into detail on some of these things. But first principle, notice the variety of gifts. Some gifts are gifts that involve a lot of speaking. Others involve a lot of practical serving. Some gifts are tied to abilities, like the gift of exhortation. Some gifts are tied to circumstances, like the gift of generosity. Some gifts seem normal to our modern way of thinking, like leadership, some gifts do not fit into our nice little neat box in our modern post-enlightenment way of thinking, like prophecy. 
By the way, don't draw too hard a line between what, what you might call the miraculous gifts and other types of spiritual gifts. They're all miraculous gifts if you think about it. But the truth is, some of you have spiritual gifts that make other people feel uncomfortable. Don't worry about them, all right? Just use the gift that God has given you. There's a lot more that could be said about that. Notice a variety of gifts. Second, every believer has been given a spiritual gift. Every believer. Remember what Paul said in verse 3. God distributed a measure of faith to each person. Everybody. Each of us. No exceptions. Which means that if you're going to present your body as a living sacrifice, and if you're going to live in a way that makes sense then God's going to give you a role to play in the church. You might not think you're very useful to the Lord, but let me just tell you something. It is not your job to say that. God isn't limited by your imagination or your physical health or your lack of resources. God is much better qualified to say what he wants you to do than you or I happen to be. And he's equipped you with the skills and the circumstances to do what he's calling you to do. So instead of comparing yourself with somebody else, just lean into the gift that God has given you. Each one of us has one. Third, and I know I'm going through these really fast. Lots could be said. Third, this is the way that God takes care of his church. This is the way that God takes care of His church. The Father sends the Son to redeem a people for Himself. The Father and the Son send the Spirit to furnish the members of the church to contribute to the life of the body through spiritual gifts. This is God's plan. This is the way He does it. Let me just make a confession to you. I have spent so much time fretting over whether this or, this, this or that spot in the church is going to be filled by a volunteer. Years. I used to be, uh, I used to oversee a children's ministry and a bus ministry and some other ministries in our church that reached hundreds of people. We had Awana, we had Sunday school, we had uh, children's choir, we had children's church, we had all, all this stuff that took volunteers, over 200 people in volunteer roles in our church. And I will admit to you, I was anxious about that a lot. That was, that was wrong of me. That was a denial of, the, of a passage like this. And I can just tell you right now, I'm done. I am done worrying about it. Pastor Jake, who's, who's going to do this ministry or who's going to do that ministry? Listen, I will do my best to equip you to equip the body of Christ to fulfill the needs of the body of Christ. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, you have to decide whether you're going to use your spiritual gifts to build up the body. And we can't worry about what other people do. Sometimes we have to ask ourselves the question, are we doing this ministry because God wants us to do this ministry or are we doing it for some other reason? Because the Holy Spirit does not have a logistics problem. He didn't accidentally send all the servants to another church. He doesn't accidentally send Christians to the wrong church. He doesn't forget to provide certain types of people. Oh, I forgot to send a guy that has discernment to that church. Whoops. God doesn't make mistakes like that. What actually happens is that we either refuse to walk in obedience and, and generously serve the body, or we grow discontented with what God has provided. And folks, I just want to just challenge us to, to lay aside the anxiety. Let's stop comparing ourselves with the church down the road, and instead ask, God, what do you want us to do? Who have you provided to meet that need?
Fourth principle. Your spiritual gifts are not about you. Your spiritual gifts are not about you. You're already a living sacrifice, right? That, that's logical. So your spiritual gifts are not for your benefit. They're for the benefit of the body. And that is an uncomfortable truth to American Christians, isn't it? We've managed to make even spiritual gifts about us. Church growth experts will say that if you give someone a job where they feel important, they will come to your church and they will stay and they will stick with it. So what we do is we listen, instead of listening to the Bible, we listen to the church growth experts and we treat Christians like consumers and volunteer positions in the church like the product we're selling. Come to our church. We'll give you a spiritual gifts assessment so you can have this therapeutic experience of self-actualization. You'll find your true self. Then we'll give you a job that makes you feel important and useful and doesn't ask for too great of a commitment, but makes you, maybe in exchange, you'll stay at our church. Maybe put a few bucks in the offering plate. And inevitably, the glamorous jobs get filled with dilettantes and dabblers, and the church chews through the faithful few who are left to do the thankless tasks like changing diapers or giving a little extra money to pay for the new septic system or visiting the sick or going to the nursing home to visit the widows. Why does this happen? By the way, there's nothing wrong with the spiritual gifts assessment. I think you understand what I'm saying. Why does this happen? Because instead of living like a family where we strive together, we are using our service in the church as a marker of status or a line on our resume. Beloved, come on. You know this. God has already given you all things. You don't need to go to the church and take more than what he's already given. See, this is what makes logical sense in view of the work of Christ. Jesus didn't serve himself. He didn't make his own work about him. He didn't teach his disciples because teaching made him feel good about himself. He didn't lay down his life because he had a sick and masochistic desire to, to suffer or something like that. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And folks, when we really allow truths like this, the truths of the gospel of Jesus, to soak in, soak into our bones and shape the way that we think, then the only logical response is clear. Total sacrifice, humble self-regard, generous service in the use of our spiritual gifts. That's what makes sense. So let's do it, church. Let's be reasonable. Let's be rational. And in order for me to ask you to do that, I need to take us back to the foundation, to the bedrock of what started it all, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the body and the blood, broken for us and shed for us. And so that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table in just a moment. Would you bow with me in response to the word of God? Father, we... Uh, we just want to thank you so much for the incredible, unspeakable gift of the Holy Spirit, the down payment of the inheritance that we share in heavenly places in Christ. Thank you for calling us your children, not just rescued from wrath, but seated at your table.
thank you for gifting each one of us so that we can participate in your work and build up the body of Christ. Lord, as we enter this time of reflection and remembrance, I pray that you would take these gospel truths that we are illustrating with our actions and cause our minds to be changed. Help us to shed the thinking of the world and to embrace the reasonable logic of the gospel, to be one body with many members. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.